Nor is I prefer to think of it, dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where two brothers answer your question, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. How are you, John? I'm doing well, Hank. As you know, it's Olympic season, which can only mean one thing in our family. It's the Marble Olympic season. (laughs) That is is actually correct. Right now in our house, we spend 12 hours a day watching the proper (laughs) Olympics and 12 hours a day watching the Marble Olympics. To be clear, I love the Olympics. I think the Olympics is great, and I want uh, I love these times when this sort of feels a little bit more like we're living in a globally productive society, uh, and we're connected by things that we like rather than things that we hate. And uh, yes, but also the Marble Olympics, John. Oh, the Marble Olympics. It's just it's just fantastic. Every year, Henry and I go all in on the Savage Speeders, and every year, mm. the Orangers break our hearts. <laughs> so for the people who don't know what's happening, there's a YouTube channel called, do you know how to pronounce this, John? Yella? Yella's Marble Runs? Yeah. Uh, and they are, it's, it is a channel of marble races and other marble competitions. And uh, and this happens all year round, but then during Olympic seasons, uh, both summer and winter, there is there is a a marble Olympics where marbles compete against each other in various events like high jump and speed downhill speed runs and uh, uh, other. <laughs> and it's just it's, they have a lot. There's a bunch of teams. Yeah, um, there's yeah. Mar- marble curling. There's marble curling, which apparently this year got they 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 canceled the marble curling because it was too boring, and they're re- he's recreating it a second time. Yeah, well, I for one found every I I find every moment of the Marble Olympics absolutely engrossing, and uh, I just it it is outlandishly entertaining, it, it impossibly entertaining, and it just goes to show you that uh, while times are dark on parts of YouTube. On other parts of YouTube, the Marble Olympics are showing us all how we can come together and hate everyone who roots for the Arrangers. <laughs> I've been uh, I've been rooting for Team Galactic, and that's not going super well. So my backup team, which is a new team this year, the Midnight Wisps, yeah. have been my have been my team, and they're actually doing quite well. Uh, yeah, uh, our so, backup team yeah. is the Oceanics, uh, which also oh, that's Catherine's team, and they are not doing well. They have not had a good uh, Olympic so far, but. Uh, the arc of history is long, and it bends toward the savage speeders. <laughs> well, I'm really excited. Uh, I'm really excited to see how the Marvel Olympics goes this year. It's it's fun. Uh, it's especially good uh, viewing for commercial times because when you're watching the Olympics, you can't skip the commercials because it's live, and also it's the same commercials over and over again. And like, yes, I'm aware that you want me to buy an exercise bike. Yeah, or whatever. There's a lot of a lot of Chevrolet commercials, man. Yeah, yeah. They would like me to know that Chevrolet has won a lot of awards. And uh, and look, good on you, GM. Thanks for making cars that people use. Hank, I'm not going to say that until and unless GM comes and sponsors this podcast. I do want to (laughs) say something else, though, uh, of great importance. You may remember the amazing, amazing Tiger poem I read, written by a six-year-old last week here on the pod. Mm-hmm. 
That poem uh, is published in a book, and you can buy the book. The book is called You Will Be Able to Say a Thousand Words, and uh, you can buy it, and it will support 826 DC, which is an awesome organization uh, that brings free writing programs for students between the ages of 6 and 18. So uh, we're going to put a link in the show notes to that book so that you can buy it. I have bought a copy. If that uh, Tiger poem is any indication... The book will bring me so much joy and consolation. <laughs> cool. All right. Um, sweet, excellent. And uh, do you have a poem for us today, John? Also, uh, you can f- you can find the Marble Olympics by just googling Marble Olympics or Marble Olympics. It's not difficult to discover if you would like to enjoy this this piece of pure joy in which you can see uh, marbles competing against each other. Uh, completely free of you know any of the any of the the human uh, story that goes into the Olympics. Right. Both the great thing and the problem with the Olympics is that it's full of human <laughs> stories. <laughs> the great thing about the Marble Olympics is that you yeah. get to impose human stories upon marbles, and that. <laughs> In general, for whatever reason, it just works much better. I don't have a poem for today, Hank. We're going to skip right into the questions. This first question comes from Ellen, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I have two dogs and two cats. If my dog, Winston, brings me a ball to throw, I throw it. And both Winston and one of the cats chase it, and the cat gets Mm. there first. But Winston Mm. is ultimately the one who returns the ball to me. In this situation, whose ball is it? I purchased the ball. Winston is keeping the activity going, but the cat is the one on the other end of my throw. So who is actually in possession of the ball? If a fight should break out between the three of us, which one of us has the right to keep the ball? Oh. Not gelling like a felon, Ellen. Well, Ellen, I have heard it said, and I don't know what this means, that possession is nine-tenths of the law. So I guess... There's a 90% chance that whoever is holding the ball owns the ball. Uh, well, whoever is holding the ball in a moment probably owns the ball in that moment. The question is, legally, who like who has the right to sell the ball? Ah, well, I it's, see. So the situation, Ellen, is that you own both your dog and your cat. That would be my argument. My argument would be that even when the dog owns the ball, you own the ball because you decide, like, when you say Winston, drop it, and he's like, no, and then you say Winston, drop it again, and he gets that sad-eyed look on his face, Uh huh. that's because he knows he's going to drop it. Right, or, or else you're going to sell Winston. Oh God, Hank! Don't take it. Oh God! Uh, don't sell uh, Winston very... just because he won't give you a ball, John. The thing that that uh, that that interests me most about this question is the idea that can a ball be owned by no one? I mean, can... I almost think that it has to be owned by no one in this case. It's a bit of a Schrodinger's ball situation, really. <laughs> Okay, I don't. I think the the ball is definitely not alive, uh, but also kind of not dead. I suppose. No, it's just that the ball is in more than one state at the same time. Like right. the ball, the ball is both Winston's and the cat's. P.S. Did the cat not get a name? I don't think the cat was named. I think it seemed it seemed to be that it was one of the cats, and there's multiple cats, and we're not like maybe it's a different cat each time. It's unclear. That's pretty brutal, Ellen. <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
to have one named pet in your home and just refer to your other pet as the cat. That's brutal. Right. Yeah. Can we can we name the cat? Can we name it like um, Sharpie? Is the first thing that I saw <sighs> on my desk. That's great. I love it. Yeah. So I think the cat belongs to all of you together, and you have to make votes about its future. And you, it's a majority rules situation. The ball or the cat? Is it the cat that everybody owns, or is it the ball? Yeah. No. Winston owns the cat. The ball <laughs> owns the cat, and Ellen owns the cat. And all three of them have to vote about the cat's future. <laughs> That's yeah, what I'm it's, sticking it's a, with. It's a democracy now. It's a co-ownership situation, and yeah. and everybody has to own exactly one third, so that nobody has a voting ma- a majority there. That's right. Though I guess if you get two out of three, then then you do decide what to do with the 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 ball. I, I recently wanted to John uh, do a project for Awesome Perk where I get I gather river rocks and I paint them and and put hanglerfish on them, and then uh, and then I realized that uh, that I didn't own those rocks. And that actually someone did, that being the United States government. Oh, or, boy. Uh, because they own everything. They own the land. You can't just take stuff. It's very strange that everything, it's kind of like everything is owned by someone. And there are these times when, like, suddenly objects transfer ownership from you and, like, sort of implicitly, but also maybe legally. Like, when you put an item in a trash can, that item becomes owned by the garbage company. It's not yours anymore, kind of, actually. And if you take, if like a stranger takes something out of that trash can, they're actually, are they stealing from the garbage company? Or is that owned by no, I think that they're technically stealing from the garbage company. Can I ask you a follow-up question, Hank? Yes, please. If, for instance, uh, there are two to three hundred thousand aluminum cans full back doors uh rubber tires that appear to have once belonged to four wheelers etc uh-huh. in in the white river at any given moment uh-huh does all of that belong to the government i think so i feel like it might belong i feel like it might be my problem I was kayaking. (laughs) It got briefly warm enough for me to kayak here. And when I say briefly, I mean for like 12 minutes. I was kayaking upriver and I literally passed a door uh, going (laughs) downriver. It it had a doorknob in it. Wait, Uh, but John, did you try to open the door? Because maybe if you'd gotten the right angle and you could just like open it up, there'd be a... Like no, a Narnia course. situation? Yeah, that is exactly why I didn't open the door. I like my life. I'm not trying to fall into some other dimension. I saw Outlander. I don't want to be removed from my family. Uh, no, no, I did not open the door. I did immediately think if I open this door, I'm going to lead a completely different life and go to a different dimension and live in a world probably where like, I don't know, snicker bars are sentient or something, but I, I didn't I didn't open the door. Let's move on to questions from uh, another question from our listeners. We, we've, okay. we've gone too far down the rabbit hole. Okay, I'm, I've also just Googled who owns trash. So I definitely feel like we need to we need to take a turn, turn, turn into what did we call it last week? Hard normal or something? Hard normal. This next question. Oh, it's you. You ask it. You ask it. It's my turn. This next question comes from Des, who asks, hey, Hank and John. That's not the name of the podcast, Des. Jeez. That was a little aggressive, Des. <laughs> hey! When you uh, go somewhere and you accidentally take some ants with you at home, 
when you go somewhere and you accidentally take some ants with you, do they just fit right in or, uh, to the ant colony wherever you end up? Or are they put in a constant state of anxiety because their loved ones are nowhere to be found? Worried about ants? Death. Wh- I- Okay, first of all, do you Hank, ac- Hank, when you accidentally Hank, 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 what, what, Hank, what? This note has a PS and you chose not to read the oh, PS God, and that I, I cannot not. believe that you chose not to read the PS. Holy snood. I'm just bad at this, John. God, the PS is can't wait to read an absolutely remarkable thing, which is Hank's book. It comes out in September and it's available for pre-order now and Hank just blatantly refused to read the PS about his own book and how somebody is excited to read it. Okay, now go on. Do ants experience ant anxiety when put into a colony that is not their home colony? Uh, Well, I also, it seems that death frequently accidentally takes ants somewhere. Well, that's true for any of us. Do I? Oh, yeah, sure. Picnic baskets. That seems like the major way. Okay. It's just like hitchhikers. On the cuff, on the cuffs of your pants. Yeah, um, just to answer uh, the question. You're the science person. So usually these ants die. Um, oh, that's nice. Well, to be clear, every ant dies, and that's just how it works. Uh, <laughs> ants, ants have. <laughs> there are no immortal ants. This, we've determined this. Uh, ants, ants have a uh, uh, basically. I don't know what they, I think they call it like a passport pheromone maybe is what they call it and uh and for some ant species the passport pheromone is species specific so any ant can go to another ant colony and they'll just like hey what's up steve how's it going you're an ant with us now but but many uh and in fact i think most uh ant species have uh colony specific passport pheromones and if they show up at a new colony they will be killed uh, as an invader, uh, I think. But sometimes ants with this actually happens. Sometimes with ants with passport specific, uh, colony specific pheromones get incorporated into a colony, even though they probably shouldn't. The ants are just sort of like, oh, I I get it. I see what this is. It's not an attack. It's just Steve, uh, who you know got here on the picnic basket from the lake. Uh, but it, this all does depend on the ant finding a colony of the same species to integrate into. If they don't find a colony, they will die uh, because they need the support of the colony to survive. And if they find a colony of a different species of ants, they will definitely get killed. Okay. All right. So you're saying there's a chance. I'm saying there's a chance. Sometimes even uh, two colonies will come together and form a single colony, uh, which is pretty unusual because usually when usually colonies uh, uh, consider each other antagonistic. Wow, that's interesting. It's I mean, I I don't want to get too deep into comparing ants to humans. Dot, dot, dot. Let's move on to the next question. (laughs) But before we do that, let's plug the YouTube channel Ants Canada, because if you're looking for weird YouTube channels that are about very specific but amazing things, Ants Canada is a really great one as well. And there are different clans of ants that are taken care of by this ant guy, and he's really excited. And just it's one of my favorite ways to spend 15 minutes. You plugged Ants Canada last week. (laughs) Did I? 
Okay. Yeah. You, well, you plugged, now you, you've, you've now you know now what I care about, plugged, John. You've, you've now officially plugged Ads Canada more than you've plugged your own book. This next question comes from <laughs> Beth, who writes, "Dear John and Hank, my name is Beth, and I'm an optical dispenser. My job is to help people choose new glasses, and many an people." Op- I- wait, wait, wait! Optical dispenser definitely sounds like a machine. No, is it doesn't. A- it sounds like a person. She like, dispenses like, the opticals. Like, like a dispense. Like, is that is that a phrase from another country? To me, you dispense, like, there's two two situations in which you dispense something. One, you are a vending machine. Two, it's marijuana. Uh, no, I think three, it's glasses. My job is to help choose new glasses, <laughs> and many people I help get a huge amount of anxiety when selecting new glasses. Yeah, no joke, Beth. Me too. Oh, yeah. Many uh-huh. people want to change their look but don't know what to look for, uh, other, whereas other people very much don't want to change their look and get upset when we don't have the exact same glasses. So I come to you, Brothers Green, as Hank really hasn't changed the look of his glasses much, and John has changed multiple times. I'm a big fan of your current pair, John. They do good things for your jawline. Thank you, mm. Beth. I feel like you may have some excellent dubious advice. How do I get people to feel more at ease when choosing their glasses? Oh, it's not easy. I mean, it's funny you should mention that, Beth, because I'm reading your question through lenses that I can just barely see out of because I like these glasses, but I am nervous to even try to get new lenses into them because what if they break and then I have to get new glasses and it would be such a nightmare. Yeah, I'm looking at your glasses right now, John, because I could not call them to, to bind. Sure. Uh, and they do look nice. I think that they do look nice, and uh, and they do do nice things for your jawline. And I don't think that your neck is disappearing at all the way that some people in Vlogbrothers comments, for some reason, are saying. Well, it's fine. It's it's good because the nice thing about people criticizing my appearance is that I don't actually worry much about my appearance, but I do worry about like what horrible diseases uh, I might have that are resulting <laughs> in these changes to my appearance. So spent a lot of time Googling what might be wrong with my neck. Anyway. Oh, no. I, moving I on. Have, uh, I, I, I worry that my teeth have changed shape over the years and that they're moving around. Uh, uh, yeah. It's really actually pretty amazing to have like a, at least one video of me talking every week for the last 11 years. So I can go and be like, was my tooth like that before or is that new? It and is it turns very out it's been that way for for at least 11 years. So I think. I'm yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, it is a very weird thing um, to look at your face for several hours a week uh, <laughs> while editing. Yeah one's videos and i don't think that it is particularly good for one's overall uh quality of of health but uh, i like making vlogbrothers videos and i'm grateful for the opportunity but to get to beth's question hank okay let's do it what in your experience what have been things that people have said that have helped you pick out glasses well i think it helps to have somebody who you trust a lot so 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 in general, like establishing yourself as an authority um, is actually something that that can go a long way. And ways to do that are to say like, "Hi, I'm Beth. I uh, I this is this is what I do." Uh, and and my clients include Nicholas Cage. No, um, no, that's Lindsay terrible Lohan, advice. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what a <laughs> what a what a what famous glasses wearer Lindsay Lohan. It's, the the <laughs> last time Hank meaningfully engaged with popular culture was apparently 2007. Anyway, that is terrible <laughs> advice. It is good advice to establish your your authority, but the way you 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 do that, I think, is saying, 
Hi, I'm Beth, and I am an optical dispenser, and for the last X number of years, I've worked with people uh, to get them glasses that fit well and that they like the look of, and that's what I want to do with you, and it may take a while, but we'll be patient and we'll get something that you're really happy with. And I think encouraging people in that way, uh, and then I, I really like the specificity you used, even when talking about my glasses, where you think, you know, what the glasses bring out what they help with what the downsides might be you know if if the mm -hmm. lenses are really small it might affect your field of vision etc just showing your expertise through calm generous kind uh readings of the situation i don't think that's going to make it an unanxious experience for a lot of people because it's a big choice it's a, it's you know the one thing that i wear every single day uh for for years at a time so it is a big important choice in yeah, someone's and it's life on, it's on your face man it makes your yeah. face look different and when i take my glasses off people are like oh okay yeah, I, 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 who I is truly, that man yeah i don't look like myself without my glasses so yeah i mean i i think one thing I like about your question, Beth, is that you obviously understand why your job's important and, and why it helps people. And I think if you just bring that attitude to it, that you're there to try to help people and try to be a calm presence in a difficult situation, I think that's uh, that's that's the right track to me. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and then, you know, I uh, what helps me, honestly, is having Catherine there because Catherine, I feel like, is the one who has to look at me all the time. And uh, and so ultimately, it's more her decision than mine. Sure. This next question comes from Niv, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I'm a 17-year-old girl, and my parents, at least my mom, is hell-bent on making me study math for my undergrad, while my dad is a bit more cool, note only a bit, with me doing economics, the love of my life. I feel like I'm letting my parents down by not being enthusiastic about getting a degree in maths. I love the subject, but the syllabi for a good math course is cover all the topics I utterly despise. How do I break the news to my parents that I might not in fact be doing math and that I will be doing economics to go on to become like the president of a country or a successful business person with no regrets? Live long and prosper, Niv. Isn't economics and math the same thing? Uh, what I gotta say to Niv's parents is come on! <laughs> yeah, I mean, your child could be studying... 12th century French poetics. Uh, yeah. By the way, I know Which there are people fine. in our audience who are studying 12th century <laughs> French poetics, and I thank you. That is good and noble work. But, I mean, from the perspective of, of parents who are worried about your, your, Whatever your future... Whatever they're worried about, yeah. In business, it's I think studying like, economics... You're going to be fine, Niv. Just study economics. Like, Just, is this like a like a long history? Do you have like like generations of mathematicians in your family? Like, is your great-great-great-grandfather like Gauss or mm. like some other famous old mathematician, Blaise Pascal? Mm, yeah. I mean, even Pascal, though, wasn't just a mathematician. Can't you make the case to your parents that you're yeah. going to learn a lot of math along the way to your economics degree? And also, it seems to me that economics majors are very employable. Like, I, I <laughs> can you just promise I, your parents you're going to do a math-focused economics clearly, study? Yeah, it's clearly not the concern. If you're trying to get a job, economics is definitely better than pure maths. Uh, though, and, and often if you have a math degree, you're going to end up working in something related to economics like finance. But 
in terms of like, let, like put aside job training. I'm not interested in that argument because it seems like your parents probably just want you to continue the line of the hundreds or possibly thousands of years of mathematicians in your family. Yes. And, uh, and what, what you say to that is I want to do the thing I want to do. And you didn't have a child because you wanted the child to become uh, one particular thing. You had the child because you wanted the child to be able to decide and make good things happen that they wanted to do. I did, that level of that level of control either uh, is is sort of out like outsized in your own mind, Niv, um, and and you are sort of perceiving to like more. Uh, pressure than they intend to be putting on you to choose one specific career path, or it's just it's just too much, and they they should not be doing that, and you should be choosing to do the thing, uh, and being and feel free to and excited about doing the thing that you love and you want to do. Alternately, I don't know if there's a double major in your country. I know a lot of places there aren't double majors, but. It seems like it'd be easy to do a double major in math and economics because half the classes are the dang same. Like I took an <laughs> economics class in college and it was all flipping math. I mean, I maybe I don't understand what math is, but it felt like math to me. There were a lot of numbers and <laughs> I had to use those numbers to create a lot of geometrical curve shapes. So I don't know. It felt very mathematical. Anyway, we wish you luck, Niv. I'm sorry that you're going through this difficult time. I hope that you get to pursue all of your passions in life. I, I want to get to another question, though, Hank. This one comes from Hella? Yep. All right. She writes, Dear John and Hank, my name is Hella, and I grew up on a farm that my family has owned for over 300 years. Wait, is this like the mathematician question except with farms instead? Yes. I am the second <laughs> of four children, all of whom are now adults. According to Oldersret... My older brother has first dibs on the farm, then me, and then our younger sisters. Uh, older threat, by the way, which I'm very sure I'm mispronouncing, uh, is the ancient Scandinavian uh, thing where that decides how land gets passed down through families. It oh is very my old. my goodness. And it has its own Wikipedia page. According it does. to that. My older brother has first dibs on the farm, then me, and then our younger sisters. It has always been expected that one of us should take over the farm, as it is the norm, but all of us have moved away, and I'm pretty sure none of us actually want to be farmers. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a farmer. It's just not really for me. Our father brought it up a few years ago that we should decide who gets to take over the farm, and... Well, is it wrong to want to sell a farm that has been in our family for several hundred years? Do we owe our forefathers to sacrifice enough to keep this farm in our family? There's no guarantee that we would be able to find a buyer that would keep the farm a farm. But I know that I really do not want to be a farmer. Ever since I was a little girl, I've been quite squeamish around a lot of the stuff that happens on a farm. And I really have not grown out of it. But have you seen how many movies there are where the people who want to sell the family farm are the villains? No silent ease. Hella. Uh, I feel like maybe in, in Norway there are more of those films. Because I haven't seen that many. I've seen but a few. But it would appear that, like, this is a pretty important and big part of Norwegian culture that I had no idea about, just from reading the Wikipedia page for Oldesret, uh, which I, I think I just knocked that pronunciation out of the park. And it is a fascinating law, and it is the actual existing law in Norway. And if somebody uh, who isn't in the family buys the farm, the family members have the right 
to get it back, uh, which is uh, currently about 10 years. So they can just buy it for the additional price plus the cost of any improvements. Uh, if if you sell, if you like get rid of the farm, you could get it back potentially, though there are also rules about making that not a thing. Uh, but I, I bet we have different opinions about this. Well, I mean, ever since I came to uh, to Montana, I have had a different sort of feeling about farms and families and and like the the seriousness of this. Uh, not that like I think that this should like this is how you know should it should impact you. It's just like my understanding of this has changed a lot, having known farmers. Uh, been friends with generational farmers and also new farmers and seen the kind of like the difficulty of that job. It is a very difficult and not particularly thankful job in which you have to live far away from population centers. And that is pretty isolating. And it is it is a difficult, difficult thing to do for a living. And, and also the strife and difficulty that it creates within families when you have this extraordinarily valuable thing um, but you don't like the way of turning that, you know, that huge amount of land, you know, compared to what most people own in terms of land into money is, is a really stressful, difficult thing because you're always taking out loans to buy the seed and to work the land. And then at the end of the season, hopefully you can pay those loans off. And that happens every year. And it's just really intense. Um, but also like that responsibility that people feel to their, to their ancestors, to, uh, and to the institution that they have been raised in and part of uh, for their whole lives, but also for like their entire sort of like imagined cultural history, which is a very real thing. Uh, it's the the intensity of that is, uh, you know, like I, I wouldn't have understood it if I hadn't seen it. You know, I certainly didn't, haven't experienced it firsthand, but I've seen it secondhand. Yeah, I mean, my feeling is that you should wait Hello, you shouldn't make the decision now if you don't have to. You know, maybe right. your father's saying, I, I, I want to know what the future holds. But I, I think you can say, well, you know, right now you, you have the farm and we're so grateful that you do. And we, we love we love it and we want to support you in any way that we can. And when it comes time to make a decision, we will make a decision. Because I, I also don't think that you can really know how you'll, how, not only how you'll feel, but how you're, at least three mm-hmm. siblings will feel uh, mm-hmm. when, when the time comes to really make the decision about, uh, you know, if, if there comes a time when your father feels like he can't uh, do the work or can't oversee the work, th- then you have to have that hard, hard conversation. But I think you have to have it with all of your siblings because it is it is so complicated, Hank, as you say. I mean, there is something very powerful about knowing that this is the place where your ancestors' bones are, in, in many cases, literally, and, and certainly that, you know, you're doing the same work in the same place that they were. There's something there's something powerful about that and something comforting about that. But at the same time, it's very easy to romanticize that. And Hella, having grown up on a farm, knows that, in right, fact, yeah. the actual work is utterly unromantic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, can confirm having our farmer friends. That is, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You you have to slaughter exactly one animal before you completely <laughs> lose the sense of romance. Yeah, I agree with you, and it doesn't it doesn't sound to me like you've had a ton of conversations with your siblings about this, especially. Um, and I w- I would suggest definitely having those conversations sooner rather than later. 
Which reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by Conversations with Your Siblings. <laughs> Conversations with Your Siblings. It's the whole podcast. <laughs> podcast is also brought to you by generations of mathematicians stretches back deep deep into your family history and you can't go into economics because of it i guess maybe and today's podcast is also brought to you by ants canada ants canada hank won't stop promoing it <laughs> and of course this podcast is brought to you by the marble olympics marble olympics available at yella's marble runs on youtube where you can spend your commercial time while watching the olympics watching uh, non-human competitors made of glass. Uh, this next question comes from Crystal, who asks, Dear Hank and John, why should I pre-order Hank's upcoming book, An Absolutely Remarkable <laughs> Thing, comes out September 25th, available for pre-order now, seven months in advance? I could pre-order the book in early September. At the meantime, use that $20 to, like, I don't know, invest in the stock market. Put it in the bank for small interest or dig a hole to bury it in the ground. P.S. It comes out September 25th and is available for pre-order now. Best regards, Crystal. Oh, Crystal. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for doing the hard work for me. All right, Crystal, I want to offer you a couple of futures in which you're going to be very grateful that you ordered Hank's book seven months in advance. Future number one. The entire world economy has collapsed. Okay. Everything. The stock market the um, <laughs> has collapsed. But not only that, uh, all of the savings accounts, the, the people, there was a bank run and people tried to get their cash out. And it turned out mm. the FDIC couldn't insure all of the deposits. Sure, and sure. Uh, suddenly the money that you had in, in the bank is worth pennies on the dollar. But you know what you have, Crystal? You have a physical, a really beautiful physical object, a hardcover book that you can use not only for reading and consolation, but also uh, when it becomes necessary to beat off the invaders that are attacking you because the <laughs> social fabric has completely disintegrated. Oh or my God, wait, if it's wait, an absolute wait. emergency to start a fire. Or, or, or barter because everyone knows that this book is worth the amount that it was when you purchased it. So it was when you bought it, it was worth, you know, $20 or whatever. Sure. And then now it's still worth $20 actual money, even though $20 bill might be only able to buy you like a stick of gum. So this thing is the new currency of the future. That's right. In the future, people are just going to be handing around hardcover books in exchange for eggs not, and not tomatoes. Not hardcover books, John. My, just the one, <laughs> just the one book. It's basically Bitcoin. It's, my book is, it's a cryptocurrency. That's right. It's a, as well it. as a book. Crystal, get in on the ground floor of this exciting <laughs> new cryptocurrency uh, that comes with a physical book. <laughs> it's, oh my it's, god if that is in no done way yet it is then... in no way a pyramid scheme crystal but if you don't get in at the very beginning you will lose all of your money <laughs> crystal so the real reason to reason. crystal the real reason to order hank's book now is so that you don't forget to do it later and also because it helps the publisher measure enthusiasm and excitement about the book and it is very helpful to yeah. both the future of the book and the book's author when the publisher believes that there are lots of people who are excited about it so really if you have been considering pre-ordering hank's book please do uh please do it 
now, really. It's it is, and I'm not just saying this. I wouldn't just say this. I would find ways to talk about it uh, that 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 weren't dishonest. Uh, but I I wouldn't be as effusive as I'm about to be. It is a really really wonderful book, and it explores what now feels like so fascinatingly, and it explores what fame. Uh, feels like and the way that it distorts uh, your worldview and the way that our general worship of fame has distorted the wider uh, the wider culture in really fascinating moving brilliant ways it is a, a special special novel so you will also be grateful to have been in on the ground floor of the story of an absolutely remarkable thing but the biggest thing that you can do is uh, help the book and its author by communicating to the publisher that people are excited about it. Yeah, and uh, and that has happened, and uh, and so uh, the you know the people I'm working with are at at Penguin are have been so supportive and excited, and uh, so I really appreciate everybody who has pre-ordered. It really does help, and uh, whether you do that online or whether you go to your bookstore and if you're wondering how you pre-order something in a bookstore you go in and you say i would like to pre-order this book and they will say okay i'll call you when it's in and that's that and it works all right hank we've got a question from mp who writes dear john and hank when you're on the phone with someone and the call drops who's in charge of calling back the originator of the first call since they started it or should you think of it as taking turns i often panic and quickly try to decide if i'm the more adult person in the mm-hmm. conversation and oh. if so i should take the reins and call back but even i know that's not a great method please help me to adult better bad at avoiding social awkwardness mp uh, what what happens when when we drop a call? It's usually like we both do it, right? Like we both we just... call it back at the same time, and then mm-hmm. sometimes we both get busy signals. And then a lot of times <laughs> I'll be on your voicemail, and I'll be like, "Why don't you pick up your phone? We were talking thirty seconds, and I'll I'll, I'll see you." And I'll be like, oh, right. He's trying to get to me, too. OK. Yeah. Yeah. We need a uh, system for this, Hank. But it, like, is what's it inefficient? the system? Is it like the younger person? Because you have to have some like objective thing because the call drops for both of you at the same time. So it's not it's not something to do with the context of the phone call. That's be right. something beyond that. So like whose name comes first in the alphabet kind of thing. I like that. It's who's. The, the name that you usually use to refer to that person. So not mm-hmm. necessarily their given first name, whatever. It, you know, if you call them shrimp, then shrimp. <laughs> if, you know, if you call them apple, then apple, whatever it is. The, the first letter of that name that you use to talk to the person, the person whose name is closest to the beginning of the alphabet is the person who, who does the callback. Uh, caveat if more than five seconds pass <laughs> then it's a complete free-for-all because then you start to worry like well did they hang up on me on purpose or did they get in some kind of horrible accident like are they is there an emerge that's what my that's where my head goes immediately right is there uh-huh. an emergency so don't like don't say <laughs> oh well you know apple hasn't called me back i guess that Apple just thought the phone call was over, do call them back because for all you know, they might be at the, you know, like out of the bottom of a crevasse. I once called Sarah after badly injuring my knee while trying to walk up the hill after kayaking. And if, if Sarah hadn't answered the phone, I probably would have just stayed down there for 127 hours. John, what if the yeah. phone call is between our cousin Mike mm-hmm. and our uncle Mike? 
Oh, that's they a great. Have, I, that, that's something I hadn't thought of, and that's a great point, Hank. What if it's they a have Mike the exact talking same to a Mike? Name. Yeah, not right. only the say they have the same last name too. I think it goes to the middle. Goes to the middle name. I think it goes to the middle name. Now, in the case of our cousin Mike and our uncle Mike, unfortunately, that is not a tiebreaker. So then I think you've <laughs> got to go to junior or senior. And since J comes before yeah. S in the alphabet, I think our cousin Mike calls back our uncle Mike in that situation. I think that that also would happen just by virtue of the fact that our uncle Mike would be like, Mike's going to call me back. Oh, yeah. No, I can't see our Uncle Mike really rushing to <laughs> do anything. that phone call. Yeah, just I, I love yeah. my Uncle Mike so much. He is an amazing, amazing person. I really I just I he admire cool. so much about him. He is the coolest. He is such a cool guy. Um, however, if <laughs> if there is a disconnected call, the chances that he's going to call me back are well below zero. <laughs> it's just negative. Negative chances that you're going to get the call back from from Uncle Mike. Speaking uh, of negative chances, Hank, can I share yeah. with you the news from AFC Wimbledon? Oh no! Oh no! Oh, I'm sorry. I've been following, and I feel like I'm I shouldn't be. Am I? Am I bad luck? I don't know. So good in January, so very, very, very bad in February. AFC Wimbledon have slipped back into the dreaded relegation no. zone. Currently in 21st place, uh, just ahead Oof. of the franchise currently plying its trade in Milton Keynes. Hank, oh I am God. not a professional script writer of third tier English football. Yeah. But if I were, if I were writing the narrative of the 2017-2018 season, I think we all know where it goes from here. It comes down to the last oh. game of the season on May 5th and either the franchise is going down or the Dons are going down and the pressure <sighs> is unbelievable and I vomit 35 times <laughs> that morning having flown from the United States to England the night before, and I'm completely unable to enjoy myself. And really, regardless of the outcome, I don't know if I'm going to be able to be happy. That That is where the narrative of this season is headed. There are still 14 games to try to avoid that narrative. But yeah, I mean, it, it's been a very, very bad uh, February. That's uh, really the only thing that, that can be said about it. it. It might change. Hopefully it will change. But uh, the Dons lost 4-2 to Plymouth Argyle, 3-1 uh, to Northampton Town. Uh, and that was after a 2-1 loss uh, to Barry. So it's been a difficult week. Uh, we've got a game against Bristol Rovers coming up. Uh, and then Peterborough. I don't know. Uh, it's just been a bad month, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're scoring goals, too. Like, none of these are are nil numbers. Yeah. It's like the most recent was like 2-4, and it's like two would have been good enough in the first half of the season to win, like, every game. Yeah, I know. I know. It's just been, it's, it's just are they weird. Pushing the, and are also, they pushing I, the defense up to try and, to try and not, increase scoring not really. opportunities? I, I watched all, I watched all three of these games uh, that, that we've lost, so maybe I'm bad luck, actually, although we also lost to... Uh, Rotherham, Rotherham, Rotherham. I know everybody's sure. criticizing my pronunciation of it, but I'm not going to back down. Uh, anyway, uh, I watched all three of these games and they just like they don't look they just look like behind the game. Like they, they don't look like they're running at the at the speed that the opponents are running at. They 
They just look kind of confused at the back. I don't know. It's frustrating and pretty scary, but uh, we'll see where it goes from here. I, I mean, I just really have to hope that the Dons find a way to stay up. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like you're just having a run of bad luck and then it's going to come back. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. What's the news from Mars? Uh, John, so you know the Mars 2020 rover uh, getting ready to go to Mars. You also yeah. know uh, that sometimes pieces of Mars actually end up on Earth. And this is one of the ways that we've actually we've been able to study a little bit more about how Mars, what Mars is like, because we haven't ever been able to, like, bring a piece of Mars back for us to hold. But because of, you know, asteroid impacts uh, and, and, you know, various times in the history of the solar system, pieces of Mars have actually been blasted into space and then occasionally one of those pieces of Mars will land on Earth and we will find one. Now, we've done that a number of times and these Martian meteorites are extremely prized and all of them are, uh, all of them are, you know, in scientific institutions and being studied. A piece, one of those Martian meteorites, a piece of it is actually going to be sent back to Mars wow. on the Mars 2020 rover. Wow. And this is not like, uh, this is not just a reunification to say, hey, Mars, you lost this. Uh, we, we found it and we wanted to bring it back to you because, uh, you know, possession is nine tenths of the law. So we're not <laughs> saying that this is yours, but, uh, you know, it's not exactly ours either. So, but. Uh, because there's this instrument, it's called the Scanning Habitable Environments with Raman and Luminescence for Organics and Chemicals, which if that sounds like a really awkward acronym, it's because it is. It's uh, acronym for Sherlock is oh. how, how that, that comes out in the end. Um, it needs a calibration target to, uh, to like basically to know exactly a bunch of things about this rock. And thus it can like calibrate on the rock and then it can like get better, more precise data about the rocks that it's measuring on the surface of Mars. And they wanted to use a rock that was Mars-like. And so instead of like picking a rock that on Earth that had a lot of Martian, like Mars-like properties, they are using a piece of Mars that we found on Earth. Wow. Wow. This is pretty freaking cool. That is pretty freaking cool, man. That is. Yeah. Science. So, uh, yeah, I've only about 200 Martian meteorites have ever have been uh, confirmed to be only 200 meteorites have been confirmed to be from Mars. So this is a pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, you know, next level uh, thing to do. But it's very cool. That is cool. That is cool. Well, congratulations on uh, your forthcoming reunif- Mars reunification project. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Uh, I can only hope that in 2020, when that happens, AFC Wimbledon will be playing in the third tier of English football in their new home at Plough Lane. Uh, But time will tell. In the meantime, Hank, what did we learn today? John, we learned that ants have special passport pheromones that allow them to know whether or not an ant should be friends or you kill them. We learned that the Marble Olympics is arguably the best Olympics, but definitely in the top two. (laughs) And we learned... That my new book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, comes out September 25th and is going to be the next big thing in cryptocurrency. <laughs> and lastly, we learned several ways not to pronounce oldest threat. Oldest threat. 
All right, Hank, uh, thank you for potting with me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We're going to re- go record our patrons-only podcast this week in Ryan's right now over at... Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find out more at patreon.com slash dearhankandjohn. But thank you again uh, for potting with me and to everybody who listens and sends in your questions. I- I'm sorry we don't answer more of them. They are an absolute delight to read, and it brings us so much joy to be able to do this every week. And thank you, John. This podcast is produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. It's edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. Our music in the beginning and the end and for This Week in Ryan's is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't don't forget forget to be awesome. awesome.